Welcome to KYH2O, a podcast about all things water in Kentucky. I'm Carmen Agaritas, an Extension Associate Professor in the Biosystems and Agricultural Engineering Department at the University of Kentucky. And I'm Amanda Gumbert, an Extension Specialist for Water Quality with the University of Kentucky Cooperative Extension Service. Join us as we get our feet wet exploring Kentucky's water resources. Well, welcome back to another episode of KYH2O. I'm here with Carmen Agaritas, and Ms. Carmen, you got to meet with Wayne Sanderson of the College of Public Health recently, and um, tell us what you all talked about. We talked about drinking water quality and how that is related to some of our land use impacts, um, and we really started this conversation off uh, because we got on the topic of, in the U.S., I think a lot of times we take our drinking water quality for granted. We assume everywhere, everybody's got good drinking water quality, and that's not necessarily true. Yeah, that's, I would absolutely agree with that. You know, we, we never give it a second thought when we wake up in the morning and we go into the, the bathroom and turn the tap on to brush our teeth or uh, wash our hands or get a drink of water. We, we just assume that it's safe. And most of the time, that's true in the United States. It is, and the time we notice it's not is when one, or we turn on our water and it comes out maybe if it comes out a different color or we get potentially a boil advisory, but until it goes wrong, we assume it's always right. That's right, and you know, we've had some issues here in Kentucky recently um, with some of our water distribution systems, and, and so Wayne was able to describe a little in greater detail um, what was going on in those systems. Um, one of the things that's a concern, continues to be a concern in the United States, as you would think, that uh, after years of knowledge of how to provide safe drinking water, is we still have pockets in this country where people do not have safe drinking water. I mean, people know well about the Flint, Michigan issue and, uh, and their association with lead in the water from changing sources and because of the quality of the water was different, they got more lead distributed into their, into their homes. In Martin County, we have uh, very much a similar sort of situation where it's a dis largely a distribution problem. I mean, the water uh, from Martin County uh, mostly comes out of the Tug Fork, which has had issues with pollution from uh, mine runoff and from from uh, toxic metals and uh, things like that that have been in the in the water, uh, but even after the water has been treated, it's been filtered, it's been cleaned, it's been chlorinated to reduce um, bacteria and uh, parasites that uh, eliminate those from the drinking water. Once the water is distributed to the homes, uh, we're finding that there's problems with the distribution system. It's old, it's antiquated, it's substandard. Uh, water from the environment can leach into the pipes and then come into people's homes. And that can bring in uh, toxic materials that happen to be in the soil or the water that surrounds the distribution pipes. So, so that's, uh, that's what one of the problems we're dealing with out there is trying to make sure that even if we provide clean water from municipal Vitality, that it's properly distributed, it's safely distributed into people's homes so that uh, their health isn't affected from, from uh, poor drinking quality water. In Martin County, I mean, the, the things that we've had to be concerned about are uh, the bacteria that can get in when a, when a distribution line is, is leaky or compromised, and uh, you could get uh, bacteria from the, from the surrounding water, the surrounding soil that could get into the, into the pipes. Also, uh, in certain places in the country, particularly when there's been uh, either natural um, materials in the, in the rock 
or there's um, uh, contamination that's come from industry, uh, then what can happen is those materials can get into the, into the water as well. If they're not properly taken care of at the treatment plant, then they're distributed, or if the distribution system's compromised, then those things can leach into the water too and, and be distributed to people. So by toxic metals, the sorts of things that I mentioned are lead as a concern. We also have a, a pockets in Kentucky where we have ars high arsenic levels. Um, that have been either in the natural overburden or have been there from previous use of certain pesticides and herbicides or have been there from plant industrial effluent. We've had issues in uh, uh, a place here in Kentucky, a different county, Montgomery County, where the soil was heavily contaminated with arsenic from a former wood preservative company that had gone out of business and had heavily contaminated the soil. So Carmen, Wayne just talked about lead and arsenic potentially being contaminants that could get in our water systems in Kentucky. Um, you know, sometimes we hear that, it sounds a little bit scary, um, but Wayne also did a nice job of explaining why we should be concerned about those contaminants in our water. Let's take lead as the first example. Lead is an incredibly toxic material. It's, a, it's an amazing um, uh, agent uh, metal in that it can affect all different kinds of, uh, of health systems. I, in particular, um, it, uh, it tends to attach to the blood cells, it can cause anemia, it can cause uh, uh, disruption of uh, lots of bodily functions. We've seen uh, even minute amounts of lead can, particularly in children, can affect uh, their ability to learn. It's a neurotoxin as, uh, as well. Uh, some of our colleagues here at University of Kentucky, uh, there's a large study that's been done in, uh, in Cincinnati, at University of Cincinnati, has found consistently that as the lead levels rise, um, the IQs of children, their performance in school declines, and so we have issues uh, w w issues with that. Once a child in, uh, ingests lead, it can sequester in the bones, and so it can be there for a very long time. You know, like, like for example, arsenic. You mentioned that one is relatively uh, water soluble, excreted quite rapidly from the body. Lead can be in the body for a much longer period of, of time. It does have heart effects. It has kidney. It's toxic to the kidneys. Uh, so uh, lead is a, is a long-term problem. Arsenic, uh, one of the major concerns we have with arsenic is it's considered a carcinogen. So a person who's been exposed to high levels of, uh, of arsenic are at increased risk to certain types of cancers. And so that's, uh, that's a concern that we have is when people, either through their drinking water or the environment in which they live or the job that they hold, if they're exposed to high levels of arsenic, then long term, uh, we worry about increased risk as they age to certain types of cancer. That's actually uh, uh, what my career's research has been, is looking at exposures and trying to link that to, um, uh, to um, uh, health effects. And so usually, uh, it's, uh, it goes hand in hand, epidemiology goes hand in hand with toxicology. So you've heard these stories about, um, you know, we feed rats a certain contaminant and then we watch and see what kinds of organ systems Systems, uh, what kind of health effects uh, the, the rat has. Uh, and then we try and extrapolate that data because rats aren't humans and, and they're different size and we, we try and extrapolate that. Now, of course, it's problematic to only have an animal model and try and figure out what's a, what's a safe level, but that's the first line of, of uh, research. We've 
really use, because we can expose rats, we can control their exposure, we can take these animals and we can uh, figure out exactly what concentration we're going to expose them to, how we're going to expose them to, uh, to the uh, material, how long we're going to expose them, and we can do all kinds of dose calculations. Um, and it tends to be that uh, you know a little bit doesn't cause much damage and then all of a sudden you begin to see an effect and then you get to the point where virtually all the animals have some sort of health effect. The common, um, uh, commonly called dose response curve. Uh, and we try to extrapolate that to what it would do with humans. But then there's human studies. That's what epidemiology is, is we would uh, look at people who've been exposed and we would try and figure out their, their dose. Now that's trickier with humans because we don't control their exposure. So how would I do that? Well, I would have monitoring data for water or air or, or what have you, and I would try and estimate, use that data to estimate what I think people would have been exposed to, whether it was from water samples, uh, how long did they live in that home, what were the average levels, uh, what do I think the intake per day would be for somebody drinking that water, and then, of course, it's, um, there's a lot of error in that, there's a lot of variation in that, and we would uh, uh, build in safety factors to, uh, to try and make sure that, hey, this is the best guess, the best estimate that we have. Uh, we're gonna put in a little bit of a safety factor, and that's how EPA and OSHA and uh, other agencies come up with what they think is safe levels. And of course that changes over time. Research continues to be done, and if we say, hey, this wasn't protective enough, or in some cases, rarely, but some cases too protective, then we can vary those levels. And they come out in the news, and they come out in the Federal Register, and people will say, hey, we've changed the standard on this particular thing for water, for air, for, for what have you. So Carmen, listening to Wayne, you know, some of what he has to say is a little bit unnerving and a little bit scary. Do you think so? It can be scary. And one of the things I took away was really how do we know how much of a contaminant in the water is really a problem? How do we know that, because um, it's all not the same. How do we know if one level is low, but I'm not exposed to it much? Is that going to be okay or, or maybe not? So Carmen, in Kentucky, you know, and in most of the United States, we've talked about how we pretty much have safe drinking water, you know, all around. But are there cases where somebody might not have that assurance, or how do we know that we have safe water? So the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency actually has standards, which all states have to meet at a minimum, uh, regarding our drinking water. So different uh, constituents or what my, people might think is contaminants uh, in the water, there's certain ones that they say this is a level that is a min minimum contaminant level, you have to be below this. Um, so in, for example, Lexington, we have Kentucky American who does our water here, they have to test that water on a very regular basis to make sure once it's treated, it is meeting all those regulatory requirements. And then how would I know that as a consumer? What's my reassurance that, that they've passed the grade or have a good report card? Good question. In Lexington, for instance, I receive every year a, what you just talked about, a report card from Kentucky American describing uh, what my water has been like for the year. And if you're interested, uh, you should also be able to go onto the websites uh, of, of different water distribution systems and see how are they faring? What are they doing? It's public information for you to have. And I think those are called consumer confidence reports, I think is how that goes. And um, in my understanding, too, is it is based on the number of customers, right, that those um, 
distribution systems have that determines how they have to publish that data, I believe. But so that's if I'm on some sort of municipal system that I pay for my water. And not all of Kentucky is served by those water services. So some of some of our residents and some of our listeners may be on private water sources. That's very true. Um, when I was growing up, for instance, um, I, my house was on city water, but my grandparents who lived very close to us had well water. So they actually had a well that they drilled down into the aquifer and would use that to pump up for uh, water for their drinking, for showers, anything like that. Um, more and more across the state, there's more efforts to get people on what they call municipal or city water. But we still have a lot of folks, particularly in the rural parts of the state, that have private wells. And so those systems could be compromised um, by the surrounding area. And Wayne has um, a good explanation of how that happens. Sometimes those private wells can become compromised. And particularly if it's a well uh, that's near uh, an animal facility, uh, where there's a lot of cattle or horses or, or pigs or something, then um, runoff from those agricultural uh, uh, operations can get into the into the well. Uh, also, it depends on where the well is taking its water. The deeper the well, and the if it, particularly if it's it's cased, it has a um, uh, a, uh, a shroud around it, uh, basically that goes down to where the water is. Then th that water tends to be be cleaner. The shallower the well, the more likely it can be contaminated. Amanda, we've talked about municipal systems having to undergo regular testing to meet uh, EPA or Environmental Protection Agency standards for drinking water, but what about private wells? Well, there aren't regulations in Kentucky that force private well owners to test their water, but we do recommend that those um, wells be tested at least on an annual basis. And so, the first thing that a homeowner can do if they are on a private system, whether that be a well or a cistern even, um, is they can contact their local health department and that health department can give them directions on, first of all, how to collect a water sample to be analyzed and then they can give them direction on where to send that water sample and what things it should be tested for. So there are certain parts of the state also, Carmen, that um, at certain parts of the year um, there may be a concern of um, agricultural chemicals that could be used on the, on the surface that could be getting into groundwater sources. So Carmen, one of the other things that um, I know comes up often when we're talking about groundwater and the quality of wells is how land use practices really impact water quality. So you talked to Wayne a little bit about that. And, and let's listen to what he has to say um, concerning something we haven't mentioned on this podcast so far, and that's bacteria. So I have an experience with wells that have had uh, high coliforms and high E. coli counts in them. Uh, and some of them are actually quite deep, but uh, uh, you know, so you would expect that that's water that uh, fell on the, on the earth decades ago. So what's it doing with, uh, with bacteria in it, uh, in it now? And often, as I said, it's associated with either a compromised septic tank, uh, raw sewage coming from, uh, from a home or from an agricultural operation or even municipal influence sometimes it can occur. You know, if we have a lot of flooding, uh, we can have uh, treatment plants that are overcome and then that uh, with this happens from time to time where we see that happen. Um, we have 
have um, manure lagoons when there's a lot of flooding. They can overflow and they can get into the uh, into the systems. So if you have a well and it's been compromised in, in that way, <clears throat> simple chlorination works. And first of all, you need to kind of find out why did it get contaminated. If it was a fluke, if it was one of those things where you had a, a hundred year flood and uh, the chances are it's not going to happen again, then um, that's uh, a less of a concern than if it's like, hey, I, I, um, I disinfected my well and a month later it's contaminated again. And that, you have to find out what the source is, what's going on, what's causing that well to be contaminated. But actually, uh, simply uh, using something like a chlorine bleach in your well and then letting that well run for a while to kind of uh, circulate the, the chlorine through it and get the, get the concentration back down um, to, uh, to, to, to basically little chlorine left in the, in the water does a great job of, of disinfecting it. So Wayne has a, a, a good tip in terms of um, you know, how to handle bacteria in a well. And, but the other thing that, that you all talked about, I think was a little bit about overall changes in agricultural practices. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, one of the things we talked about was even thinking back on Wayne's uh, time growing up or even my time growing up is how our awareness in agriculture about what we do on the land impacts water quality, not just the surface, but in the groundwater has changed. And with that is more use of and invention of different best management practices. And one that Wayne talks about is really kind of a simple one, and that's this idea of filter strips or buffers between the ag practice and the water source. Is, so there's been a lot of changes in, the, in farming practices over the years. Um, I mean, I remember that uh, uh, when I was a, a, a child uh, helping on the, on the farm, that we would plow the ground and we would uh, disc the ground and we would uh, get out rid of all the weeds, largely from mechanization. We'd come along and we'd plant, and when we come back and we would till that ground, uh, cultivate that ground to remove weeds. Uh, that's the way we did it a lot in the 50s and 60s. And then, of course, we had this uh, agrochemical uh, call it a revolution in which uh, a lot more uh, um, uh, herbicides uh, have been have been used nowadays uh, and it, it helps with erosion control and helps with a lot of things as we don't till the ground like we used to. We do a lot of more no-till planting. All right, well, how are you going to control the weeds? If you've got a field full of weeds and you're going to plant soybeans or corn, how are you going to give them a chance to survive? We kill the weeds with herbicide. Uh, well, if I have a stream and I'm spraying right up to the, the edge of that stream, what is the chance that I put herbicide, put pesticide in that stream? Uh, what's the chance that if I'm right up to it, that when it rains, that it's going to run into the, into the creek or the, the river that's, uh, that's nearby? Uh, well, what has happened now is um, the uh, agricultural uh, uh, industries come along and say, well, we need filter strips. Also, the other thing is uh, integrated pest management. Uh, with the, the use of satellite imagery, with the use of drones, they can come over and they can say, rather than uh, let's just spraying the heck out of a field to kill all the weeds, we can look at the, how weed pressure varies so we can vary our, uh, our use of pesticides, which helps us cut back on the amount of pesticides that are being uh, planted. Uh, it's a very exciting uh, time to be in, uh, be in agriculture and working in, this, uh, work in this area. And of course, the other thing is, um, you know, when I mentioned the um, agrochemical revolution, there's a lot of uh, agrochemicals that aren't on the market anymore. 
uh, it's because they were shown to be not as safe as we'd like, and so that's been a change that's occurred too. We've been developing safer and safer products, uh, both for people who apply them as well as environmental issues. So Wayne just described some practices that our farmers can use and that they do use on the land to prevent um, contamination of water resources. And I want to remind our listeners that um, farmers in Kentucky have another tool available to them, and that's the Kentucky Ag Water Quality Act. And with that act, um, it says that if you own 10 acres or more involved in agriculture, that you are to create a water quality plan. And that plan is a set of best management practices that will be implemented on the farm to protect water quality. And I think it's a benefit for our farmers too because it helps them guide them through um, you know, identifying the practices they can use. And it usually is, is a practice that not only is gonna help the environment, but it also helps their operation. And so I just wanna make a plug for that for um, those listening that our farmers are really working hard to um, not only grow food and fiber for us, but also to protect our natural resources. So just want to remind our listeners one more time that if you do have a private water source, a drinking water well or a cistern, that if you um, are questioning the water quality, we encourage you to test your water at least annually. And for more information, you can contact your local health department or your local Cooperative Extension Service office. You've been listening to Carmen Agaritas and Amanda Gumbert. Learn more about water at uky.edu forward slash BAE forward slash KYH2O. Subscribe to hear all episodes of KYH2O.